your trusted source for news and analysis about Chicago White Sox prospects and player development, covering the Major League Baseball draft and international market, plus the action in Kannapolis, Winston-Salem, Birmingham, and Charlotte. This is the Future Sox Podcast with your hosts, Mike Rankin and James Fox. And welcome to another episode of the Future Socks Podcast. My name is Mike Rankin. I'll be your host alongside James Fox, Senior Editor of FutureSocks.com. Today's special guest, the one and only Mr. Delicious 13, that is Beef Loaf from the108.com. It's so good to talk to him again. I don't know how many times we've left him off lists in terms of interviews being spectacular. I think we may have to add him to this one because I anticipate a lot of quality content on this episode. Because here's what we're talking about. Fresh front office. That's exciting. Also, some prospects. That's also exciting. That's the entire show. So let's get into it. Beef, thanks so much for being here. We really appreciate your time as always. Before we get into this, I know we're going to talk Chris Getz plenty, but I know you're working on a lot at FromThe108.com, and I just want to bring this up. At the midpoint of September-ish, White Sox Twitter was about as dead as I've ever seen it. And look, rightfully so, going back to last year, it was brutal for the fan base. This year, total disappointment, and fans just kind of stopped watching and really caring about following the day-to-day activities, and you tweeted about it. Can you just elaborate a little bit more on how those feelings were kind of taken in as you were experiencing the finale of the 2023 White Sox? Yeah, absolutely. And, and Mike and James, thanks for having me on as usual. I, I love cutting up with you guys. Yeah, I, I mean, as we're coming down the the stretch of the season, you know, I've I've been a season ticket holder for a lot of bad seasons. I've paid attention to the White Sox for a lot of bad seasons. But this one was unique in the fact that it was such a disappointment from the original expectations. Even people who thought, okay, this team might underperform, no one thought it was going to end up kind of the way it was. And the White Sox really took a battle axe to the roster and stripped away uh, kind of a lot of uh, known guys, na- named players that people would want to go out to the ballpark and watch at the end of the year. And we were kind of left with like what looked like, uh, you know, a team that's just playing out the string and, and you didn't have any stars there to, to go out and watch. And even the normal people that you would see at the end of a season, just like, yeah, I want to catch my last game or two. They weren't there that much. Even the the promotional days, like halfway to St. Patrick's Day, were not as crowded as usual. There was just a a general sentiment of White Sox fans that the towel had been thrown in, and they had thrown it in themselves. And the interaction was down. People showing up to the ballpark was down. It was was a sad scene in September. And I just want to elaborate on that because, you know, post-trade deadline, we saw the news of Kenny Williams and Rick Hahn getting dismissed. And... There was a moment of jubilation, right? I mean, a lot of people were excited for the future of the Chicago White Sox, and then almost immediately there were rumors that Chris Getz was going to take over. And what's kind of funny, kind of sad about that is tongue-in-cheek, whether it was us, whether it was from the 108, we're saying, oh, don't worry, the next man up is Chris Getz. Well, it turned out to be true, and I, I think a lot of people saw it coming. However, now I think there's a new direction in which the White Sox are trying to build a championship and Chris Getz made his hires. Let's begin with the decisions in the front office. Brian Bannister, senior advisor to pitching, Gene Watson, director of player personnel, Josh Barfield, the assistant general manager. What's your feeling about the direction of the Chicago White Sox with those core names now being involved? It's, it's funny you ask this question because when the news originally came down, I we, we did an emergency podcast uh, from the 108 on our YouTube channel 
and I told my sock summer that this never happens to me. I'm not much of a crier anymore. I used I used to be a crybaby when I was a kid, but I'm not as an adult. I'm not much of a crier. And my eyes welled up with like joy that they had uh, had changed the front office direction when initially the firings happened. And my sock summer told me on that live stream, he's like, well, it might end up being Chris Getz. Don't get too excited. And then they, a week later, they hired Chris Getz. And I thought, okay, you know what? This is definitely not what I want. I, I think most White Sox fans like would have liked to see an exhaustive search, would have liked to seen some outside name with some success tied to him. But I thought, you know what? This is different, though, than what the last thing was. So I'm going to be uh, agnostic. I'm going to give it an opportunity. I'm going to let this start to play out. And I'll say, sitting here right now, at the end of October, it'll be Halloween tomorrow, um, I'm cautiously optimistic and I, I, I almost hate to feel that way. I, I'm happy with White Sox fans if they want to say, you know what, you got to show it to me. I'm not believing anything here, but the, the hires to start off, it shows me that, you know, at, at least, you know, uh, Chris Getz might be self-aware because his first big hire is Josh Barfield, another farm director to come in and put his heads together. He realized my farm isn't as good as I'd like it to be. Josh's farm is as good as I'd like the White Sox farm to be. Come in here. Let's exchange ideas. Let's do this. He went out and got a proven commodity in Brian Bannister, someone who has brought along pitching staffs, who has been able to kind of like do the the concept that he that he knows he can tell Jerry Ryan's that we won't have to spend a lot on pitching. We'll be able to find some diamonds in the rough there. Uh, so I, I, I'll say I'm cautiously optimistic that he's at least aware of the, the way to get this done. I'm not sure if any of it will work, but uh, so far so good. Yeah, you know, and the two other big hires, I guess, that were announced right around the same time. I love the the Brian Bannister one. The other one, you know, Gene Watson kind of is what it is. I think he's, an, you know, he's one of these old boy scouts, so we'll see, right? Like, I don't really care. Like, he's, I, I think, probably has a relationship with Tony La Russa, like a lot of these guys. But if he, if he acquires good players, nobody's going to care. But right. <laughs> the Bannister one, I guess like a two-parter for me, what do you think about just like that direction? Right. Cause like his title's weird, but look, I think he's their like director of pitching across the org. And then do you think they do similar here on the hitting side? Cause I, I feel like within the next couple of weeks here, we should have like a bunch more hires. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you that there's going to be a bunch more hires. And I, I actually said this on the one way podcast recently. I think this is probably going to be a couple year process of them going through kind of everyone in the organization and turning over some stuff. I, I don't think it's just going to be like these next couple months, they make the hires and that's it. I think this is going to be a continuing process. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm excited by the Brian Bannister uh, hire because I like the approach of having a uh, almost a coordinator of pitching, basically someone who's overseeing at, at, at the highest level. Bannister has had success. I heard one person that I, whose opinion I trust very much is like, it's possible that some of the, this pitching game has gotten, you know, where Brian Bannister is not cutting edge anymore, but I'm not sure I believe that because hearing a lot of what Bannister has to say, he thinks like uh, an advantage gambler. He thinks like uh, someone who is always looking for an edge. So I really like that approach. I hope they do do it on the hitting side. And what's funny, we, we had uh, Ian Eskridge uh, from White Sox Daily on the 108 podcast last week, and I, I threw a uh, tinfoil hat theory at him. I said, what about this? They haven't hired this hitting person yet. It's possible that that person was was still out there as one of the final four teams. Kevin Long was a guy who everyone uh, thought very highly of last year looking for managers. What if you told Kevin Long, look, this manager that we have in there right now, we're not really sold on him. Maybe we bring you in here as the hitting guy. You kind of do the the whole hitting program for us. And then guess what? If that manager's seat gets a little hot, 
Jerry Reinsdorf loves to hire a guy who's already here. So we'll put you in here. We'll put you right next to him, and you can get know, get to know this guy. So I, I hope they do really shoot for the moon on on the hitting side. Yeah, that would be awesome. Kevin Long would be great. Like, or even like that philosophy. Like uh, John Maley is like in AAA with the Cubs. Like I would take him. Like somebody who preaches walks and homers. It, I think I think we're due. We're due for somebody yes. that can get them to maybe do this. So look, th- this is really mean beef, but. I, like this manager, I, I can't like, I don't, I, I just, you know, it's just kind of some of the stuff he says. Yeah. Do you remember Terry Bevington? <laughs> I, I don't know. Like I'm almost, so I, I only ask you because I'm 38, you know? And like, I, I remember like my dad talking about Terry Bevington, but I don't, you know, I don't remember like how bad that was. Like, is this, is this close? What's funny is like I, I was thinking about this when when you had you had mentioned this, James. I'm like I'm 45. I kind of remember him a little bit, but I remember him having more personality. So being more outwardly like that guy's a dumbass. Whereas Grafal has no personality. Basically, he doesn't say a whole hell of a lot. And it's like even the interviews before he was, uh, you know, actually managing the team after he'd been hired it was like. I know nothing about this guy. I can't even figure out a single thing about him. And then he kind of managed milk toast like that. I mean, with the exception of he got a red ass about uh, Oscar Colas. Other than that, it just felt like a very milk toast manager. So uh, he's not as outwardly like uh, quotable and and kind of I don't want to say dumb, but like kind of dumb out, out in public like Terry Bevington was. But yeah, I mean the 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 results are kind of following that same line. Well, and I know like you're look you're you're very future focused because you you want a world series right but you also go to all the games so you don't want to sit through 60 win seasons obviously but like when he says stuff like they're never going to sacrifice a major league win for development like in a lost season like does he know do you think he knows that like that's insane or just i don't know like some of it some of it's just crazy to me I think I think it's just a matter of like not being prepared to handle the side of. Well, I mean, I don't know if he was prepared to handle any of the managing, but not being able to, uh, prepared to handle the side that is a PR side, right? I think what he was trying to say is like we're going to play hard every game, we're going to try to win every game, and that's fine. But of course, you're going to sacrifice wins for development. A lot of teams, even good teams, will do that in instances when it makes sense to do so. So a team that stinks, of course, should be doing that on the regular. They should be playing guys in an instance where, okay, this is a good spot for them. Let's see if they can thrive in this. Yeah, it's just almost every soundbite that came out of him was either completely milquetoast or just like not reading the room correctly, not understanding it. And I'm kind of like, I'm, I'm happy that the original, like Chris Katz's original soundbites were, were kind of like blind to this as well the more i hear uh josh barfield talk the more i i think okay they kind of get the idea here i know they keep wanting to throw the term culture out there but us white Sox fans that is meaningless to us put a good team out there and 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 with josh barfield talking about hey we want to improve the defense right away because this is like that's music to my ears it's like okay yes this is a good idea go do this you know we didn't have enough talent go out there and get some defense I think it's a great point, and you're highlighting Josh Barfield, and rightfully so. I got optimistic about the hire, similar to how you feel, right? When you said it earlier about being farm director formerly of the Arizona Diamondbacks, but I feel like they're in the same age. They've kind of taken the same pathway in front office jobs, and in terms of understanding the modern era, I think it's just good to have a couple of like-minded guys working together in that regard. And when it comes to finding consistency. Let's let's shift back to hitting, if you wouldn't mind, because my God, those walk rates, especially near the end of the season, 
it was really difficult to watch. And I'm thinking back, Todd Steverson, then Frank Menachino, and then Jose Castro, all been dismissed. And you know, I don't know how much of that plays into the lack of success on the hitting side, but man, they got to walk more. What was your take on just another dismissal of another hitting coach as well as those walk rates? Yeah, I mean... <laughs> Yeah, the walks rates were abysmal. Actually, I was I was following it on Twitter and I was putting it out there for other White Sox fans. Like as far it was like a bottom uh, ten, bottom fifteen walk uh, amount of walks in a full like 162 game season since they started playing that many games. I mean that's how bad the White Sox were as far as drawing uh, base on balls. Yeah, I mean there, you need a change in philosophy, but really what you need is a change in. Uh, the type of players you're bringing in, like uh, there's there's limited uh, ability to move a walk rate in in some direction, right? Unless you get to a player really young and and, and kind of really work with them. If you're getting someone, you know, uh, you know, a college age player or something like that, there's probably limited room you can can kind of move that stuff, move the selectiveness, and and get them to the place where they're going to be walking a lot more. So I think a lot of it is just selecting players that that do this and being better at drafting players that you know you can bring along uh, to sort of do this thing because we're watching players make nice moves through the Sox minor leagues, but they're all the same type of player, meaning they're athletic but not shortstop athletic. They are uh, swing lots, so they almost never walk. They have some pop but not like serious power. Those are the kind of guys that have been moving through the Sox system lately, and they've been doing a good job turning uh, raw athletes into that player because that's that's tough to do to begin with. But they're not getting far enough as far as like the patience and and being a you know sort of a productive major league player that has a sustainable walk rate. We give Mike Shirley, amateur scouting director of the White Sox, a lot of credit for him being forthright about evaluating players and considering character into their decision-making process. And when they decided to draft Colson Montgomery, I think it's a perfect example of somebody who understands the strike zone and is mature enough as a hitter that you believe that he can turn into a professional baseball player with you know, a consistent approach at the major league level. And we're starting to see some trends in the recent drafts. Like, for example, Michael Turner, just finished his first full professional season in high. He's older at the level, but again, just one example. I, I want that approach to translate over the next couple of drafts as well as you know these players are continuing to develop. But I want that consistency because I agree with you. A professional approach is a game changer. And when I'm thinking about the way the White Sox are going about their future, I Keep going back to Andrew Vaughn and you know how I feel about Andrew Vaughn. We've had this conversation before, yeah. but we'll be honest. It's been a disappointment in terms of what we had expected from him versus what we've seen. And a lot of it has to do with the swing and miss rate and the lack of walks. What do you believe is the future of Andrew Vaughn? How do you feel about him as a player now that we have a bit of a sample size and please, we got to be real. Yeah, no, <laughs> It's fine. Let, let me dovetail off your last point yeah. regarding Mark Sh Mike Shirley a little bit because w one thing that is encouraging, and uh, Treezy and I have talked about this on One Way Podcast. We've talked about this drunk off our asses. I'm not going to swear on the show because I know it's on the broadcast basement and Chris Lanuti will be mad at me. But uh, uh, we, we've talked about this with, with Colson Montgomery and, and Brian Ramos. They're the type of prospects where I don't care if they have to go down the defensive spectrum because they will do enough with the bats. They have the patience, they have the power, they have all the things that you need, and you need more of those guys. You need more of those guys where if the, their perfect position on defense doesn't work, they're still very usable. And like, the, the, you know, those two guys are the guys like, okay, we're starting to, to, to go in that direction. 
And it's extremely encouraging. It's extremely encouraging to, to pull those guys in. And yeah, you want them to land up the middle if they can, but if they don't end up up the middle, it's not a disaster. They're still very usable and great. We'll get on to the next guy. With regards to Vaughn, I've been thinking about Vaughn a lot lately because um, Treasy and I have been doing our trade with every team's uh, set of blogs and videos for From the 108. And what's interesting about Vaughn is the discussion about improving the defense. Vaughn, I thought, improved quite a bit on defense uh, at first base in his first year there. I thought watching him throughout the year, he improved a lot. But I just don't think he's ever going to be a guy who is, you know, one of these first base monsters like Christian Walker or someone who's a a really good defender. So if, if I were the White Sox right now, I would be looking at Vaughn and Eloy Jimenez and figure out which one of them I can get the most in trade for. And then the other one would be my permanent DH. And I would either I would go out in the marketplace and either get someone like, let's say, Carlos Santana, who I know is going to walk a little bit and, and play some defense over at first. Or maybe I'd go out and get a Reese Hoskins, who maybe the defense isn't there, but I got a 10% walk rate in my back pocket. I would really try to like harvest one of those spots to, uh, to fill a need that the White Sox kind of needed a macro level here. Because I, I think right now with those two guys – they both don't walk enough uh, for my liking. Eloy doesn't stay healthy. Uh, Andrew uh, Andrew Vaughn, I think, can be fine if he ends up realizing he's like a 280 hitter and not a 30 home run hitter. But like, w- w- we need to move one of them off that spot and kind of uh, upgrade in my personal opinion. Yeah, so Andrew Vaughn has been so disappointing. Like, I thought there was a chance that he was like a you know, a first baseman that was going to hit 22 home runs every year. But I, but I thought his like OBP would be super high like I thought he'd be like a 370 on base guy and he's definitely not that so like I'm totally I look I there's one untouchable on the White Sox and he's in center field so whatever (laughs) whatever they decide to do I think will be fine with all of us as far as like who they get rid of right like they they might get a return that we all hate but I I don't think we're gonna cry over anybody that they might get rid of so like dovetailing off of that I, I guess we can do this part first Tim Anderson Liam Hendricks, those are probably what the two biggest decisions I would say. What do you, what do you think? I guess just about what they do with those two guys. What should they do? Yeah, so I, I I'll take Tim first. I did I did a video on uh, from the One Hundred Eight's YouTube channel where I kind of broke down uh, the season that Tim had just had and comparable seasons of of, of shortstops. And really, when you have a, a season as bad as he had, it was a negative two WAR season uh, by Baseball Reference WAR. Like most guys do not recover from that. Most guys don't come back and become like reasonable regulars. They become journeymen, uh, utility players. They're out of baseball soon afterwards, whoever. So I think you hand them as much as it pains me because I love Tim Anderson. And Tim Anderson debuted uh, 2016, the year that we started the 108 blog. So we've been with Tim Anderson since we've been making content. And we're, as a group, we love Tim Anderson. I I just feel bad about it, but I think you give him a million dollars and you, and you tell him to walk. I, I think it's it's kind of over there. Uh, w- with regards to Liam Hendricks, uh, Tree Z did a video uh, thinking outside the box, maybe that you rework his deal. You maybe you even maybe you even tell him here, look, we're going to give you the fifteen million over uh, time, but we'd like to re-sign you and kind of have you here. We'll let you rehab for one year. The next year, you'll still be a White Sox, and then when you're healthy, come back and pitch for us. Just because of the goodwill it could it could uh, foster. But yeah, I think we're kind of at the end of the road with both of them, probably. So, I mean, I like the idea on Hendricks. Like, I like I get it, right? Like, Jerry Reinsdorf built in this, this contract this way so that he could 
get out of this money and pay 1.25 million or whatever. So that seems pretty obvious, but I do like the idea of just like signing him to a new, like big money two year deal or whatever. And he could stay here. Cause I think we all like rooting for that guy. Like yeah. I want that guy here, but if you're going to lose 90 games potentially, and he's not going to pitch till August, I just like, don't see this organization picking up that money. And the Tim Anderson thing, I, I think this is where we're going to kind of find out a lot about Chris Getz in this new front office, because we know exactly what the previous front office would do. They would pick up the option, spend the entire winter trying to trade, trade Tim him. Anderson, and then they'd trade him for like a $14 million like bad setup guy or something, yeah. you know, yes. and <laughs> instead of just eating the money in the first place and spending it on something useful. So mm. I think that I think it's going to be pretty telling that decision and what they decide to do. So Budget allocation at this point for this offseason, I've been saying, and, and we're not going to necessarily get to like the can this team contend question yet. I've been saying, I just, I, I don't see it. I know they play in the AL Central, but they're the fourth worst team in the league this past year. Can they be better? Sure. I don't see contention. So if that's the case, like, what, what do you think for this offseason? Like, what are we looking at as far as you know, just financial allocation and like the type of guys that you might bring in to play on next year's team. It's interesting. I I would actually like to see them be aggressive as far as uh, trying to. Not, they're not going to sign at the top of the market. I, I think that's uh, I think that's what you're alluding to, James. Like I don't think they're going to take big shots in the market, but I would like to see them make a lot of transactions, even smaller transactions, because the last regime that was one of their Achilles heels. They could not shop at the bottom of the market effectively. They couldn't fill in the roster with one and two win players off the bottom of the market. And the way the free agent market is trending the last several years is the middle class is going away, much like uh, the U.S. Middle class is kind of going away. You've got like this upper class where you have these really expensive, high-quality free agents. And then a lot of teams are, are signing their younger uh, talent to extensions early. So what you end up with is a, a top level, and then you end up kind of a, a lower level. You can you can shop at the bottom. And the White Sox in the last decade plus were pretty terrible at shopping at the bottom. I'd love to see Chris Getz get a lot of reps at shopping at the bottom and see what they can do. And he's brought in the right kind of people to help do this, like especially in the pitching side with Brian Bannister. It's like he's brought in the guy where like, okay, we're going to take a bunch of chances on the pitching side. Let's see what we can get to work out. Let's 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 kind of fish there and see what ends up showing up. And like, I think it's an important skill for him to start realizing almost immediately. So I hope that they are very transactional this offseason. Yeah, totally agree with you. Something we've talked about a lot on the show, and I, you know, I like making jokes about Ken Williams when I can, but just that he, you know, he's on record as saying that like, why would he sign one thirty million dollar player when he could sign like six guys, you know, that like for the same money. So I'd always say, like, why would you sign one guy for thirty million when you can sign six six guys that stink, right? For the same, because <laughs> right. he they were whether it's like Kenny or Han or who, like they were so bad at it. Like yeah. I think every year we'd we'd do the thing where it's like, oh, they didn't sign George Springer, but hey, they signed these five guys instead, and it was just like a collective, like you know, like one and a half war sometimes, but sometimes yeah. not even that much, right? So yeah. yes, that would be that would be a huge change if they could actually like shop at the bottom part of the market. Cause look, there are other teams that don't sign guys at the top end of the market every year that still win. Like it is possible to just, right. you know, be, <laughs> right. be good at pro scouting and, and build a team this way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and you're not always going to land the guy at the top of the market, even if you're always in on those people. I mean, we saw the giants this last off season, they weren't successful. They were trying to get uh high end free agents. They didn't end up with anything really. I mean, it's like, sometimes that just happens. 
sometimes you're not a fit for those players. And I think that group, like the middle uh, middle class is shrinking more and more. So it's going to be harder to sign those types of people now season. Like bottom feeding is kind of where it's at. You're going to need to get a lot better at it. And, and like you said, the last group stunk at it. Now in, in the 2000s, the, the Ken William GM years, before a lot of people were kind of like buying, buying out older guys or figuring out, they had more hits back then. But I think it's because, you know, the, the market was less sophisticated. As it tightened up, as people started using data to figure these things out and the White Sox lagged behind, they stunk at it the last 15-ish years. And so I agree, yeah, they, they need reps. They need to improve at it. This is why we love talking to you, Beef. Really good stuff. And make sure you're following from the 108 and their podcast, the 108 podcast, of course. Look, last season, so 2023, the Charlotte Knights finished 53-96. and 96. The Birmingham Barons finished 51-87. and 87. It's just been abysmal at the higher levels. Now, in the second half of Birmingham, a little different roster. We're starting to see some of the core guys, in air quotes we could put there, uh, participating in AA. And it's not like Project Birmingham. This is actual promotions going on. And I'm just curious how your group from the 108 and you, of course, uh, individually, are feeling about the prospects and who among them you believe can really help turn this White Sox organization into more of a consistent day-to-day competitor? That's a good question, Mike, because, you know, obviously the, the, the two main names for us are Colson and Brian Ramos, but I don't think either of them are ready. So I, I, I would like take my sweet time with them. I would take my sweet time with, with uh, the catcher kid from, uh, from LA, uh, Edgar uh, Carroll. Carol, I, would, yeah. I, would, I would wait on him as well. The guys I think that can help this year, uh, I would say as a group, we are low on the second base people. So the Lenin Sosa's and the Popeyes and even Roman Gonzalez, who's, who has been here already. I don't know if you, he's not really a prospect anymore. We're kind of low on them, I'd say, but we're much higher on, uh, on two arms that seem to be weaving their way through double A and had some setbacks, but, but got the triple A by the end of the year. And that's your guy, Christian Mena. And then Nick Nostrini. I think both myself and Treasy would love to see those two guys at least get opportunities to win rotation spots to start the year. Because I'm a big, there is no pitching prospects kind of guy. If they're getting outs in double A, let's see what they can do here. Why waste these bullets? So I would like to see them it, it be open and give them a shot to win. If they're not one of the best ones, that's fine. Send them to AAA. We got time. But those are two guys I think that can make an impact in 2024 and that we might see in Chicago in 2024. I'm pretty excited about both. Yeah. I like that you brought up Nostrini specifically, because I feel like he's just far more advanced than many of the others that they had acquired and also are developing at this point. Triple A is just a baron right now. They they don't have representative starting arms that can come in and fill innings. And I'm thinking about Michael Kopech's future. What do you feel like Michael Kopech is at this point in his career? Yeah, That's a I, great know. Question. I know. It's a great <laughs> question. I, I'm. I'll, I'll tell you the uh, the way I think about it. If you look at White Sox starts in 2023, and you look at them by game score, Michael Kopech had the top one, and I think he had the third best start as well. So the upside is most certainly there. In a year where, uh, like James mentioned, it's like a, a it's like a pipe dream that they actually compete. I would still go the mode of he's a starting pitcher, and I would. Take whatever with it that it is. And last year was leading the league in walks. And I would gamble and I would let Brian Bannister have Adam and say, look, this guy's a starting pitcher. We're not messing around with the bullpen. I would either do that or I'd see if you could find a suitor in trade that still thinks of him as a starting pitcher and I would and I would reap the rewards. I don't 
I don't get the idea of putting him in the bullpen. I know he was good in the bullpen in 2021. I just don't, I don't understand why that's something that makes sense in 2024. And I would be upset if that, if that's the approach they take, unless there's some concern about injury or some or something about his durability that forces it. Because I, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to stifle the upside. Even if they're, if it's minimal, even if they're the, it's super risky. I totally agree with you. I hate the Michael Kopech relief pitcher idea. Like we, we want to take the, the guy that's, that has all these issues that doesn't throw any strikes and put him in the bullpen. Like it, it doesn't make any sense to me. And like, I kind of have always been with the idea of like, look, if there's a couple of teams that, that still believe, then those are the teams that you trade Michael Kopech to. Otherwise you let Brian Bannister, like give him a shot to start in a season that we don't think is going to be very good and try to salvage whatever you have left. So yeah, that I, I agree. I, I hope they don't put him in the bullpen because I would be upset. You kind of touched a little bit just on this earlier. What what type of offensive shakeup just would you like to see if you if you had it your way? You don't have to go specific players, but just I guess like the spots they have open. What what's uh, what what are some things they could do to just like at least make it so we can watch the team play next year? <laughs> it's funny you mentioned like watchability because I I think that's actually important. As someone who watches all the games and a lot you know a lot of White Sox fans are passionate and they do watch a lot of the games. Uh, watchability is important. I, what I would do is I would just go and I would follow through on what uh, Josh Barfield said when he talked to Chuck Garfine that they want to improve the defense. I would spend time trying to improve the defense kind of in any spot where we had a hole. I mean, shortstop is a huge one. Right field is a huge one. If you look by like defensive runs saved, I mean, like there's three or four games worth of wins, just putting up a, a league average glove in both of those spots. I mean, that's how bad they were on defense. You know, there's some things that are immovable, right? You're, you you can't get Andrew Benintendi, or it'd be hard to get Andrew Benintendi out of left field. I, I'm not a big fan of his defense there, right? Like, Yohan Makata, you're going to need his defense to rebound a little bit, or at least him to stay healthy enough so that the, the defense is solid there. Like, but there are spots where you can uh, vastly improve the defense. And I would, what I would do is I would get aggressive. Like, there's, there's a couple of 70-grade gloves I was poking around fan graphs or whatever. And I'm not saying the White Sox go get these guys. But what I'm saying is the White Sox should look for guys that are blocked. Look for guys that, okay, this guy is a terrific uh, glove at whatever position, at shortstop, at second, at right field or whatever. And the hit tool is questionable. Let's gamble. Let's let's try it. Let's see if we can uh, get these guys in. And the two guys that came to mind for me, and I, I actually just used one in, in one of our, uh, our trade videos, is Nassim Nunez uh, from the Marlins. And, you know, he's a 70-glove at short. I, I don't think he can hit. They're going to knock the bat out of his hand but at the majors. But so what? Let's try it. And there's also uh, Corey Howell in uh, San Diego. You know, he was, a, he was a farmhand in Milwaukee, got traded over to San Diego. Try it. Trade for one of these guys. They're not top 100 prospects. They're just guys. But let's let's just see the defense improve vastly. If you want to go get Kevin Kiermaier and put him in right field, great. I would love it. Like, or Adam Duvall would work too. Like s- someone that I know can catch the ball, put them out there and let's just live with, with whatever warts they have on offense. Because I think this is like the fastest path to us not watching the atrocity that we watched last year. So those were a couple of the trade targets. What do you, what did like Austin Hedges catching? Just like Beautiful. somebody, somebody yeah. that can catch. Cause you know, kind of <laughs> like, like you talked about Christian Mena and, and Nistrini. And look, I think Eater gets a shot and all these other guys, right? Like you need 10 pitching prospects to like come up with two. Right. They might have, they have I can give you 10 names. Yeah. So, you know, if two of those guys are in their rotation. Yeah, Davis Martin's would, coming back. They're good, they're good right. guys. So, you know. 
So yeah, so get somebody that can catch that isn't named Salvador Perez. Thanks. <laughs> and beef with this. With, yeah, we. What's get funny it. about Salvador Perez yeah, yeah. right now is like he's not a catcher anymore. Like like uh-huh. like I, I I I'm not as like I, I heard you guys talk to Chris Lanuti and he wasn't as cold on the idea as a lot of people are. I'm not either actually. I was like, yeah, he's mm-hmm. expensive. If you get them to eat some money, like you bring him in here and he's like a part time DH. I don't know. I don't hate it that much, but he's not a catcher. Like he doesn't even catch that much anymore for the Royals. Like they know it's over behind the plate. They're like, he's nominally behind the plate. It's like, you're just buying a DH basically at this point. So I, I, I don't know. I like, uh, you know, it, it doesn't upset me that much, but it's also not useful. And he's very expensive. I think it does matter though. Uh, when it comes to clubhouse culture, I think the white Sox need a revamp in that regard, but Hey, it's not my department. I'm not in the clubhouse. I'm not there every day. I just see what I see on the field and that body language on the day to day, especially when they're bad. It's hard to watch. With that all being said, we were talking about just trying to improve the roster in 2024. I know you're doing a series. You talked about it briefly from the108.com. Make sure you're listening to their podcast. You're going division by division and trying to see if there's any trade partners with the Chicago White Sox. Can you give me some of your favorites? <laughs> yeah, sure. Actually, I mean, uh, one of the best ones uh, that we did uh, earlier tonight, and, and it was with the New York Mets. Treasy traded uh, Andrew Benintendi for Starling Marte. On the basis that Andrew Benintendi is kind of like, uh, you know, kind of a steady-ish player. He had a bad year last year, but he's probably not going to dip a lot lower. He won't pop up much higher. Stanley Marte was terrible last year, and he's 35 years old, and maybe he's finished, but maybe he's got a couple three-win seasons left in him in right field. And so, like, that one was interesting because you're taking on volatility. You're just saying, yeah, maybe this is roughly even and the money's close. You're going to get kind of the guy who's probably a win-and-a-half, two-win player. We'll take the guy that might be a huge disaster or might bounce back and be really good. And I think the White Sox should embrace volatility at this point, where, where they're at in the in the hierarchy of being towards the bottom. Embrace volatility. Take some risks. Take some chances. And so uh, that one I liked. The, the other one that I, I, I briefly mentioned, Nassim Nunez, who's playing in the AFL right now. Uh, he's a Marlins farmhand. 70-glove at short. I traded uh, Peyton Paulette for him. Traded the pitching prospect. Like, look, let's let's see if we get Ozzie Gian light. Let's see if we end up with a playable shortstop. Let's see if we end up with Adam Everett. No bat, but okay. Just enough glove to give you a couple wins on, on defense only. Like, these are the type of shots I would like to, the White Sox to take. And they start gambling a little bit in the trade markets and in the free agents. I'll be happy even if the results don't come because that's something I feel like the last regime, especially the last, let's say, seven to ten years, didn't gamble enough, didn't take enough chances turning over the roster. So, you know, Beef, everybody follows you for different reasons. I, I always get a kick out of like a lot of your, your pop culture stuff that you just randomly put on Twitter. And you, you mentioned Varsity Blues the other day. Yes. Varsity Blues is like a favorite of mine because I was in like probably seventh grade and me and a buddy like convinced our parents to buy the tickets to the rated R movie and let us go in by ourselves and watch it. And then we're watching miss davis like a 13 year olds like in a movie yes. theater it was wonderful yeah so but the whip, like the whipped cream bikini like yeah so, oh yeah so that's like Absolutely. your poll question the other day i mean it's yeah. clear it's clearly darcy but it's like two questions it's like you i think you date jules and you have darcy over like when your parents are gone that's <laughs> that's like and it's exactly what jonathan moxon did that's, that's I mean, that's 100% true. It's funny, the responses, because the responses were exactly like that, no matter which one they picked. They, they were responding like, yes, these are the, the two, all three goes. Yeah, I mean, I, I really like Varsity Blues. It's probably not my number one uh, football movie, It's but it's in the top three for sure. 
Uh, I would put North Dallas 41st. And then it's it's tough between Varsity Blues and the program. I, I like both of them, but for different reasons. Uh, but they, they both have staying power. Like, I watched, you know, like I was watching Varsity Blues on Friday, like you mentioned, James. And I loved it. I loved every minute of it when I was watching. It's like, yeah, like I just seen it again, you know. Well, and the, like Billy Bob and uh, Lance Harbor are both dead. I know. Yeah. 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 I, yep. I I knew that. Yeah. That's yeah. It's heartbreaking to think about right? it. Who would have thought Paul, Paul Walker would die racing cars in real life. You know, it's, kind of, <laughs> it's pretty crazy. It's improbable. You know? Mike, John Boyd is such a jerk in the movie. Like he's so, so hateable. Worst. Like he's such yeah. a great character. <laughs> yeah. He's, yeah. Uh, James, Bud, Bud Homer's, have you seen both of these movies or no? I got to tell you, I was hoping you didn't ask. Yeah. Uh, Cause oh no, my <laughs> God. Come on. I love it. I'm totally lost here. <laughs> You got to watch them. You got to. No, I will. It's on the bucket list. Yeah, for sure. Hey, Beef, this has been fantastic. Thanks so much for taking the time as always. Uh, You're a treat. And make sure, of course, from the108.com, you're following everything. We're looking forward to the next 108 tournament. It's always such an an engaging time for White Sox Twitter to interact and follow one another and just to embrace the community of loving a team that's just never loved us back outside of maybe one or two years. (laughs) Thanks so much, boys. I appreciate coming on. That's Beef Low, at Mr. Delicious 13 on Twitter, at JamesFox917. I'm at Rankin906. Make sure you're following Future Socks at Future Socks. Thanks to Chris Lanuti and the Broadcast Basement for hosting us on their platform. And, of course, if you're willing and able, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Go to FutureSocks.com, click on that Patreon link, and it really uh, really helps us out on the day-to-day. For Beef Loaf and James Fox, my name is Mike Rankin. We'll talk to you all next week.